You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 50. It's fitting that we should bring up our half-century here at the Team Guru podcast with an episode about cricket. My guest is John Buchanan, and I have to admit that I've been chasing John to come onto the show for quite a while. He is just about the perfect guest for the podcast. He was a long-time coach of the Australian cricket team and is these days a leadership consultant, practiced in the art of turning his experiences from the sporting world into lessons for business and life. John Buchanan spent eight years coaching at the top level at a time when Australia was at the height of its powers as a cricketing nation. The results that he and his team enjoyed during that period put him in the conversation as the most successful big-time coach in the history of professional sport. He coached some of the biggest names in the game and some of the biggest personalities. His time at the top wasn't without its challenges. He had his tussles with, among others, Shane Warne. Tussles that at times became very public and very painful. And conversely, some of the game's greatest credit him with a good deal of the success they enjoyed on the field. In the conversation you're about to hear, John opens up about his unique coaching style. And he tells us what it was like to be the first ever coach of the Australian cricket team who didn't themselves have a career as a test cricketer. And of course, he talks about Warney. Lots of talk about Warney, mainly because I ask him lots of questions. John sets the records straight on the nature of their relationship, and he confirms as true one of the most outrageous things I've found in my research. Did Warney really say that to his coach? John was so generous with his time that this episode is part one of two. I hope you enjoy my conversation with John Buchanan. John Buchanan, welcome to the Team Guru podcast. Mate, it's uh, terrific to be here, So, uh, even though it took me a while. (laughs) You found me eventually. John, I'm not sure who I'm speaking to. Am I speaking to a boffin who rode his luck, a mad scientist, or the most successful coach in professional sporting history? Well, obviously, I'd like you to uh, focus on the third of those options, but uh, to some degree, I suppose there's a little bit of the mad professor in, in me in some areas, but I think that's still very important in terms of the sort of the role that I had was to bring that approach to the job. So, you know, with, I suppose, um, winding the clock all the way back and looking at what I did and and then going down this professional coaching route. The professional coaching route didn't start till I was 42 or 43. And by that stage, obviously, I'd done a lot of different things. I mean, apart from trying to chase the dream of playing for Australia, which sort of terminated in my mid-20s, then there was chasing other dreams. I was going to be a, a sports administrator. I was going to be a, 
a lecturer. I was going to be a top public servant. They're all various stages of my life. And, and obviously, with children coming along, I was hoping to be a pretty good dad at, at the same stage. So all those bits and pieces all sort of became part of the, the jigsaw puzzle that made up John Buchanan, who then was fortunate enough to find that he was a coach and that he enjoyed coaching and that he was then given an opportunity to coach Queensland. So I always felt that my strength was in the fact that I came from a, a quite a wide and varied background. I had a different view on the way things are or were and was prepared to challenge that. So, yep, going back to your original statement, there's a bit of those couple of boffins and professorships in amongst uh, what I think was um, a good coaching framework. So the description as a boffin who rode his luck, of course, is a reference made by Damien Fleming, actually, to the fact that you walked into a team full of players who, even by that point in their career, mid- midway through their career, were going to be greats at the game. And you, you, you walked into an already very successful unit. We'll talk about that by itself later. The mad scientist is the fact that you did a lot of things differently, and, and we'll talk about that now. But the last one, I just want to make quick reference. I'm not sure if you know about these stats. There is an argument to suggest you're the most successful coach in the history of, of professional sport. You know about that argument. If you think about people like Vince Lombardi, the NFL's Green Bay Packers coach, Alex Ferguson, of course, the Manchester United coach, and Michael Jordan's coach from that era, Phil Jackson, you have a better winning percentage than any of those coaches. Did you know that? Uh, oh, look, I didn't know that specifically. But I did know that in terms of our winning percentage, what we stacked together, this is with the Australian side, obviously, over a period of time was pretty significant. So, and I I suppose to some degree towards the end of when I was coaching the side, to some degree that was more in the front of my mind than the back of my mind. The, the so numbers? Prob- probably going into that World Cup, the final, my final event, it really was not necessarily driving my decision-making, but I was aware of the fact that it would be nice to finish up with the record intact, so to speak. So few people admit that. So few people say, oh, yes, I was aware of the numbers. I know that my winning percentage was 76.9. Why do they deny it? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. For me, results were not necessarily the, the prime motivator, if you like, in terms of why I did what I did, because I always believed in the process. And so I very much believed in, well, if we could understand how we win, or indeed we were very much chasing the winning formula. So in other words, going back prior to Moneyball, what wins a game of cricket? And trying to actually dissect that right down to some fundamental points, that if we could actually hit those numbers through the course of a game, then we would be guaranteed of winning. And it, it, it virtually came out of, I suppose when we won the Sheffield Shield for the first time in 95, Carlton Football Club in Melbourne won their flag, the AFL flag, and uh, there was a coach by the name of David Parkin who was running that side. And I had not met him to that point but made a point of meeting him after that point where in an article that he wrote, he talked about two really interesting things which really always have resonated with me and I suppose have been key parts of this process. One was they were on the northbound locomotive. So in other words, they were a bit bulletproof. The Seattle Seahawks coach, Pete uh, Carroll, talks about grit and you'll find different 
words that explain this thing. Ultimately, it's around a bit of culture. It's around the feeling inside a group. It's the invisible pieces that bind a collective together. So they talked about the North Bank locomotive in Carlton. So that was around team culture and always seemed really important to me to how you actually put that together. And, and just because you have it one day doesn't mean you've got it the next. And, and just because you haven't got it one day doesn't mean you can't recapture it and, and uh, build upon it. But the second part that he talked about was something he termed sacrificial acts. And it's very much a part of my business these days when I go to talk to either individuals or team leaders or teams. It is about actually getting them to try to understand the sacrificial acts that they put into place in their daily life. His definition of sacrificial acts, though, was the plays that his players would deliver on field away from the ball. So there's a lot of action around the ball and, and that's always measured, you know, from kicks to, I guess, um, I don't know what AFL measure these days, but handoffs or uh, contested marks or whatever that might be. But generally that's around the ball. His idea of sacrificial acts was everything that was happening away from the ball. So what what his team would do to ensure that maybe two or three plays down the track they were in a position to either defend well or, or to attack well. So the the sacrificial act is somebody actually doing something on behalf of the team that nobody you get else no stats for nobody else basically sees. Yep. But it's a contribution that you make to help your teammates. What's that in cricket? Backing up. Yeah, backing up a throw. Um, it can be simply your twelfth man running around the the outside of the field to make sure he gets a drink or a water, you know a towel or whatever is needed by a particular player. So there's a whole lot of things that go into that. And But what was really interesting was that Parkin basically said, and I can't remember, I'd, I'd love to find the article again, but basically I'm pretty sure he said through that season, if they committed 64 sacrificial acts, and the number might be incorrect, but whatever that number was, that they never lost a game. Right. He was a numbers man. Well, they had, well, like everybody, we've got a lot of data around and we've got massive amount of data around now. So what is the useful data? And what are some of the stuff that hasn't been discovered yet? And, of course, that was what Moneyball was about yeah. uh, as well. But it led, kept leading me down the path of saying, well, what wins a cricket game? And can we actually define that? And I, and I think we were getting close to it in the one-day game. I think it's very hard in a five-day game where there's conditions changing all the time and obviously four innings potentially in a game. And therefore, I think possibly the T20 game may lend itself to this notion of hitting some key indicators of performance that are outside where everybody's looking at the moment. Now, I'm not really involved and I'm not really looking at that, but I, I think they would be there. What were some of those hidden numbers that you stumbled across in the one-day game? I heard recently through the, the most recent Big Bash, a, an ex-Australian player coaching in the IPL whose name escapes me has nominated the 18th over as one of those secret numbers. If you win the 18th over of an innings, you generally win the game. What were your equivalents in your time? Yeah, I, th I think that was probably Dean Jones talking yes, about that. Yes, Look, to give you an example, in our one-day mantra, if you like, so again, in business, we have visions and missions and value statements and, and certain objectives to reach. So in our one-day side, we would value playing with patience, playing in partnerships and creating pressure. So three Ps became a bit of a mantra. And if we 
did that, we believe that we're putting ourselves in best position to win games. No guarantee, but putting ourselves in best position to win games. So that's all very well, but patience to David is different to patience to John, is different to patience to Warney or different to patience to Steve or whoever it might be. Is that where you've got to put numbers around it? Well, I think for clarity Mm. of what individuals need to know when they go out on the field so they can deliver their role, it's very important we use these sort of labels, what does it really mean and how are we actually looking at measuring that because therefore we want to give you some accurate feedback about either how you delivered that or collectively how the team delivered that, which therefore leads to the way that I can improve somebody's game or I can improve my own game or collectively we can improve our own game or importantly, we can actually see trends to see whether or not we're actually setting new benchmarks and you know going in the direction we want to go. So if we took patience as one of those P's and break it down into our departments, just like a business would do. So we've got a batting department and a bowling department and a fielding department. And even within the batting department, we've sort of got subsections of the batting department. So the opening batters or middle order or late order. So there's abilities to break that down. And then, of course, the game was a little bit simpler then, simply because you had limited fielding restrictions in the first 15 overs, as opposed to what it happens now. But power plays, what power have you. plays, and so on. And but of course, they they can actually be seen in terms of when they're put in play. And then basically, it was happy hour at the you know the last 10 overs were seen to be the place where teams would accelerate. So that left the middle 25 overs as what you'd call yeah, the middle play. So we call those phase one, phase two, phase three. So patience in the way that we define it, it could have been defined in any way, shape or form, but let's be clear on how we see it. We saw it as the number of balls that a batsman would face before he lost his wicket. So therefore, if you were staying at the crease at the wicket longer, that was our definition of patience. And, of course, that meant that if our batters were staying at the wicket longer, they should be able to score more runs. Right. So simply survive for longer. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Seems pretty simple. Um, yeah. So, in, a, in essence, that's how we were looking then at different numbers, different ways of actually looking at the process of scoring runs either as a team, as an individual at certain phases or in certain parts of the batting department. I've actually read somewhere where you've referenced Moneyball. It obviously had an impact on you. You became the Australian coach, I suppose, in 1999, I suppose on the back of the enormous success you'd had with Queensland. You brought home the first ever Sheffield Shield trophy to Queensland in the 94-95 season, as you said. You had a reputation in that era as doing things very, very differently. You've just described some of those things. First of all, did that catch your players off guard? Did they kind of n- had never heard that approach before, both at the que- in the Queensland setup and then when you went to Australia? Was it a brand new thing to most of them? Uh, well, what we just mentioned was, so in 94, 95, there was no such thing as computers or, or data analysis going on. How'd you do it? I was very fortunate that my assistant coach, a chap I know, Jim Hunter, very good assistant coach, his brother was a Microsoft accredited programmer or I'm not sure exactly the term, but there was only two or three of them in Australia, and he was one of them. And he loved cricket. Jim said, we'll bring him in, and he'll get all the programming done such that we'll get out of the data 
the ability to analyse the game the way that we want to. So importantly, I think what was happening was that we were trying to understand as coaches what we wanted the data, or sorry, what data needed to be captured so we could make the analysis that we could then give back to the players. So it wasn't necessarily the computer programmer telling us, I can write you a wonderful program, and then you work out how you're going to use it. No, it was the other way around that we were driving the technology, which is really important, which I don't, yeah. I often don't see it happening these days. It's almost the technology and the science driving the outcome, therefore that a, a coach or a, an individual or even in business need to somehow interpret. So, yeah, that was the beginning of it in, uh, in 94, 95. And uh, it meant that we had the capacity to track every ball, therefore we had the capacity to provide more accurate feedback to individuals in the team and then gradually we could develop trends over time. Yeah, it was definitely a shock to a lot of players. And was there that mixture of people for whom it was, wow, the light has come on, I'm a talented cricket, but now with this information I can apply that talent more directly? And I guess there was others in the room who were thinking, what the hell is this guy talking about? Just give me a ball and let me go out there and have a game. Totally, totally. I mean, in those early days, I mean, you know, having a, a set of numbers and showing it to the players in a, in a sort of subtle sense, you know, for them to have a read. I mean, I know Alan Border, who was playing his, it turned out to be his second last year, but he thought it was going to be his last year in that, that season. Yeah, I mean, the numbers to him were irrelevant which he told me told in, you. <laughs> in no uncertain way or in no uncertain demonstration. But he was a player that had been in the game for so long. In fact, we played against each other as under-19s. So somewhere along the line, the selectors got the decision right for him. and uh, They missed you. Missed me. So I, I, Fell through the net. Yes. Don't know what happened there. <laughs> well, you can't say that you weren't noticed. You have played a few Shield games, so it's not as if you weren't on the radar. No, no, that's right. But, yeah, so that was back in... 1974, so... So you're the same age as Alan Border? Yeah, Did you... yeah, yeah, yeah. basically I think I'm about a year older. So you came in into the dressing room, the Queensland dressing room. Alan Border gave Queensland a year it was supposed to be after he retired from Australia. Mm. He thought Queensland deserved a year of him, brought home the shield. You were the brand new coach. Mm. Did it take a little... Take, would it have taken a bit of courage for you to walk into a dressing room that Alan Border would have loomed large over and mm. say, all right, we're doing things differently? Mm. Well, it, exactly right. I mean, once I was appointed coach, he was one of my first stops, jumping in the car and uh, driving around to his place. And yeah, I was ex- exceptionally nervous. Yet I had no proven record as a as a coach. Had you been a first grade cricket first first grade cricket coach back in my old uh, coach uh, club at uh, university for a couple of years? And there were you know a number of Queensland players in there, the likes of Sec- my, um, Wade Seckham, Michael Kasovich, Martin Love. Gradually, uh, we then had Paul Jackson in and um, Jeff Foley and a couple of guys who had played previously, Andrew Cordes, Roger Troves and so on. So it was a, yeah, a good side, but nonetheless, in a sense, they were younger players in amongst all these, or the likes of Border, some some very hard Rackerman. Rackerman, uh, Healy, McDermott, Tasley, you know, Barsby, et cetera. So, so amongst some really hardened first-class international players. But yeah, Border was my, my first call and um, you just explained to him what I was hoping to do and basically said, yeah, look, you get on and do what you're doing and I'll get on and do what I'm doing, you know, and um, hopefully we'll see how it works out. But, but did he, even if he wasn't going to listen to your numbers and, and apply it to mm. his game and let it develop his game, because it probably wasn't, to yeah, be honest, yeah, going yeah. to develop his game, no. 
did he at least not stand in the way of you applying those techniques to the younger players in the squad? No, he was very good that way. Yeah, um, and because that so could have been a pivotal moment oh, in exactly, your career. Exactly. But no, uh, in, in the in essence, I still had to be in a, a traditional coach, so it was very much around technical, I guess. But I had, as I mentioned, Jim Hunter and a couple of other boys that, that were there. Dave Gilbert, who was a former Australian fast bowler, who was running the uh, the academy squad. So one of the things that we did, though, initially was to actually join the squads together. It did put a bit more strain, I suppose, on the sort of facilities that we needed, put a little bit more strain on the coaches because we had to be far better planned, far better organised to cope with a bigger group. But nonetheless, the advantages certainly outweighed to me any sort of negatives, which was that, one, the younger group got to mix with this older group. Demystified them. Yeah, demystified. But the, and, and part of the history had always been, albeit that I'd been away from it for about 16 years or so, but in my conversations leading up to applying for the job and then getting the job, there was still this no There was a green and gold mafia, in inverted commas, perception, reality maybe, but at least perception that the green and gold boys always sort of looked after themselves, stayed amongst themselves, made it tough for the the other boys in the squad, didn't assimilate all that well. As I said, reality, perception, one of the same sometimes. Could have been, but I, I, didn't, I didn't really spend a lot of time going back into what mm. had been. Mm. I wanted to set up what was going to be and what will be. And uh, so by joining the two squads together, I wanted to take, if it was, I wanted to take that full on straight mm-hmm. away. So it was about young players and being in and around the older guys and learning how that they operate. But at the same stage, the young boys brought enthusiasm, they brought athleticism, they brought a new dynamic as well, which challenged the older yeah. guys yeah. at the same stage. And going back to Alan Boer, I mean, one of the very, very visual outcomes of that was in our old dressing rooms and their old days at the Gabba when there was a mm-hmm. dog track. After a training session, Alan Border had his corner and, and often, and he enjoyed a beer, but he loved just talking about cricket. So then you would have the young guys, you know, from Matthew Mott or Andrew Simons or Jimmy Marr or whoever the younger boys were, just sort of gathered around and had a bit of a beer but had a long chat about cricket. And so that was one of the tangible, if you like, grit come northbound locomotive, one of those little pieces of, of developing a new culture within the, the Bulls environment. So you brought something very new to the Bulls and you had enormous success and that would, that would have played a part in, I guess, legitimising your approach and making it more legitimate for you to be viewed as a potential Australian coach. You brushed on something there. I thought we were going to go down the path of most coaches having been players with 50 plus tests and you weren't that. I do want to talk about that. Well, we'll talk about that later. So you brought this new technique that had enormous success and all of a sudden you were thrust into the job of, of the Australian cricket coach, the third only ever Australian cricket coach because it was thought for a long time that the Australian side didn't need a coach. Bob Simpson, of course, the first. You replaced Jeff Marsh who finished up in 1999. You took over the team with Steve War as a, a newly minted captain as I said earlier, you had a team of future greats. They were already going really well. In a way, you were on a hiding to nothing, weren't you? Because success was expected. You wouldn't have got any applause for success. But failure would have been cataclysmic for your career. Yes, but I never really ever saw it that way. Just firstly, going back to your point when I was appointed, I guess one of the um, interesting games that we played in, in the, I think it was maybe the second year, or might have even been the 
first year was against New South Wales, full strength New South Wales side, which obviously had, you know, the, the War Boys, Bevan, Matthews, full strength side, McGrath. And we'd set about really planning that down. So we, we had vision, we had our data, we analysed how they played and we set up a game plan so that the bowlers knew what they had to do. Batters obviously had to score runs, but it was almost not the perfect game, but a delivery of the plan. And we strangled New South Wales and won the game. And that was a game at Bankstown, which was the war's home territory. So I think Stephen, being Stephen Moore, certainly filed that one away for future reference. So when it came around to uh, the Australian job, I think he was a strong advocate because one of his mantras, if you like, was always taking the road less travelled. For me, it was obviously, you know, changing the game, trying to do it. Control the controllables? Well, that was part of it, but yeah, and chasing Everest. So I think we were on track all the way through, albeit that we'd have some pretty interesting conversations at different stages about what I was thinking of doing and, and what he wanted done. So, but nonetheless, the thread was so there. So he, he, he appreciated your approach. He'd be on the losing end of it. When you talk about that being a, a perfect game, is that in the sense that you, you have plans for batsmen, you know, we think we're going to get him out this way. And often it doesn't happen. They don't get out. They get out some other way. But in that particular mm. game, did the batsmen tend to get out the way that you suggested they, they might, the numbers suggested they might. If we bowl here, we're probably going to get him out here. In many respects, that was what occurred. And I guess for every coach, this notion of the perfect game is something you'd love to achieve. And, and the perfect game really just, just means that, that you've, you've got your plan down yep. pat. And then you deliver your plan. It doesn't mean that the opposition doesn't make runs or they don't mm. take your wickets, but you actually do what, going back, to, you just mentioned control the controllables, you do what's in your control to the best of your ability throughout the course of a game. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Team Guru, helping leaders grow, teams perform and organisations communicate. Describe for us the culture that existed in that very successful Australian side, going through a minor uh, generational change, but only a very Mm. minor one, still a very successful side with some great success still to come ahead of them. What was the culture like that you walked into in that dressing room? Yes, well, um, the first time I met them, and this is the interesting thing about the Australian cricket team, it's, it's not like a domestic team. It only comes together in competition. So... November 99, they gathered about three or four days before we st- we played our first test match in Brisbane. So to, to really assess what the dressing room culture was like, I probably didn't make any great assessment at that time. In fact, two things. One is that because Ian Healy and to a lesser degree Craig McDermott were but because Ian Healy and, and Craig McDermott have been coming in and out of the, the Queensland side and a few other players have played, uh, Adam Dale, Jimmy Maher, a couple of others, Martin Love, I think, had even had a touch of the Australian team by that stage. I can't quite recall now. But because they'd been coming in out of the Australian side, they were giving me a bit of a feel for what it was like compared to what right. our group was like. Their view was that we were doing a lot of stuff that the Australian cricket team should right. be doing. So going back to one of your earlier questions... It didn't concern me about going into that Australian team. I wasn't quite sure what I was totally going to find, but I believed that there were so many things that could be improved. So whether they were winning and they just won a World Cup, I just knew if I delivered what I could deliver, we could really improve the outcomes of that team. Was the mission for you going into that side 
don't let this go backwards. And if we can take this team from really good to great, that's my plan. That's my path. Well, yeah, not exactly in those words, but definitely, as I said, I, I just believe there was so much room for improvement from what I could hear and see from a distance that I was quite confident in terms of going into that side, what could be changed. I was also bored a little bit because now I had five Runs years of coaching experience, some of it successful, some of it unsuccessful, but plenty of experience. I had a captain um, that was very supportive, which was critical. Did his support just automatically win over the majority of the players and let you at least start off on the right foot? Okay, John, we're going to give you a chance because Steve said it's worthwhile. I'm not sure Steve was ever that vocal right. about it, but I think if we are on a different path, he would have been right. saying okay. something. And then to the culture, well, I just believe that I needed six months inside to really find out how things operated, and then it would be time to make change. So that six months was turned out to be the two series we had at home, which was against Pakistan and India. So that was one dayers and test matches. So apart from one one-day game, we won all those. And that was the beginning of the 16 on, a, on, on right. the trot? Yep, yep. And then we went to New Zealand where we had three tests and maybe five one-days over there, which we won as well. But it really gave me – well, one, it gave me an opportunity to see how everybody operated and fitted together, but it also gave them some experience of me and some of the things that, that I would want to do differently. So some of it was around feedback, some of it was around the, the way that we trained, how we trained, Some of it, certainly some of it was around the way that we planned meetings and so on and, and looked at our opposition and, and where we are going. And some of it was around being on tour in New Zealand trying to take them out of their comfort zones, not as a cricketer but as a person. So we were doing lots of different things on tours, not broadly called them educational sessions. So that it was Which some of them didn't love. No, some of them didn't. But in the end, I mean, they were almost forced into it because most everybody did. It was a bit of fun and uh, gave everybody an opportunity to do something in a, in a very close and secure environment that they wouldn't necessarily have done but would have liked to have done. You know, so we, yeah, I mean, we had Jason Gillespie and Michael Kasovich. One of their tasks was to, again, talk because they became part of this fast bowling cartel. You mentioned possibly Damien Fleming before, and he was part of that fast bowling cartel, and, and so was Glenn McGrath, Brett Lee, and a few of the other boys hadn't come on board by that stage. But but they were the FBC. That, that was their, their little group. And so uh, Jason and, and Michael, uh, they had the opportunity to talk about world championship wrestling and, and uh, demonstrate to everybody what it was like and talk about the holes and so on and so on. You know, Andrew Simons was talking about Fishing and how you actually, you know, tie how you bait a hook properly and tie it on properly and so on. So there are lots of different things that, that came up. So this up. was part for you of bringing this holistic development into the players. Is that at the core of, of this good to great idea? When you've got a team, and, and a lot of our listeners would be in a position where they've come into a leadership team or into a team as the leader that are already going pretty well. And the team are kind of looking at them thinking, God, don't stuff this up. We're a good team. So you're looking at not fixing a team, not teaching them how to do their job, but hoping that they'll go, helping them go from good to great is at the core of that, helping them to expand as people. You're talking about giving them educational opportunities, opportunities to put together a speech for their cohort, for their colleagues, in order to explain something that's not about cricket, just to make them better, more confident, more articulate, thoughtful people. Is that how you take a team from good to great? I think it's certainly one of the ways. It can't be the only thing, but 
it was very much about taking people outside the dressing room. You know, so so no matter whether you're in business, politics, religion, sport, whatever the, the world is, you, you're very comfortable in your own world, you know, which I call in broad terms the dressing room. So when somebody comes into your dressing room, you're relaxed, you're in control of yourself because the environment is safe and secure. So my job, I, and I see it as one of the key jobs of coaches, is to take those individuals outside of their dressing room and place them in another environment where they're not comfortable. So if they can then develop the skills, techniques, knowledge, potentially networks over a period of time that are outside of their bubble, then to me that's got to be good for the individual as a whole person and that's always been part of my coaching philosophy. Do you look back and remember some of those wonderful teaching moments that we as teachers have had in our past where you saw someone light up, someone come alive as a human being because of a path that you led them down? Do you have those memories? Yes. I mean, uh, just talking about a, a couple there, um, that first New Zealand tour, just to listen to a couple of the, I can remember Michael Bevan being one of those, that a very, you know, he's an introvert, exceptionally good player, was at that stage the leading one-day player in the world. And he chose to speak on a topic that was very personal and close to him, but in front of the group, which he'd never have done beforehand. He might have spoken to maybe one or two in that group, but he opened up and just, uh, you know, he had himself in tears and other people in tears. And uh, I think uh, uh, probably an important little milestone for him in the way that he conducted himself and the way that he related to other people in the team. But probably even more importantly, he opened a door to allow other people into into him which to me is a pretty important part of how you work together as a team because the better that you can know yourself for a start, really important, but the more that you get to know and understand the people around you, the more that you can be supportive of them in either caring ways or in in obviously uh, quite disciplined ways sometimes. But, you know, I think that's part and parcel of this bringing a group together and how you hold them together and how you challenge them. So you, you started this gig, as I said, on a hiding to nothing, pretty much. Success was expected. Failure would have been a catastrophe. So you, what you did, you stepped in and you went, boom, 16 tests in a row, victories, world record, never been done before. That's a pretty good start. Did you feel as though then that your approach was vindicated and that you should pretty much have, have no barking voices suggesting that you're not the right man for the job? Oh, no, uh, because that's outside of my control. So all I could do was uh, keep doing the job that I saw to be done and do it the best way that I possibly could. I always knew that there would be people within the in the group, within the team, that would certainly be resistant to what I'm doing because, again, same sort of thing. They know what they do and they know that they do it well and here's a bloke that's going to come in and complicate it. And, you know, and the forefront of those is obviously warning at different stages. But also outside the team, there was always people that everybody's poised there with the knife just waiting for you to, to stumble. And as soon as you do, they're ready to insert it and, and twist it and make life very hard for you. But that's reality, you know. So all I, as I said, all I could do was keep checking in on me, keep checking in on my philosophy. Am I delivering it or am I sticking by it? And uh, where, where it seems like, it's conflicting with some individuals. Well, what is that conflict? How do I solve that? Can I solve that? Am I the best person to try and solve that? Um, but still trying to make sure that I don't 
fracture or tear down any sort of relationship that I might have, whether it be a distant, you know, long, long, you know, big space between myself and and one of the players, or a very close, close relationship. You know, it's very important that that relationship or relationship building is again one of the key components of coaching, and one of the things that I see really lacking in business today. This concept of coaching and understanding how to do it, which is all about relationships. And to me, it's one of the things, if we went back to success or how do you get results or how do you build a team or all that sort of stuff, it's pretty fundamental to that. You'd had a lot of experience coaching and being a leader. At any level, in any occupation, there can be egos in a team. That can happen at work, would have happened in grade cricket, it would have happened at the Bulls in your early days as a coach. And it certainly would have been the case in the Australian cricket team. But one thing you didn't have experience with, no matter how much coaching you did at the Bulls and in grade cricket, is people not just with an ego, but with an enormous profile as well. For the first time in your career, you were dealing with men who were vastly wealthy. They were on the front page or the back page of the newspaper most days. They had trouble, especially in places like India, literally walking down the street. It seems to me rationally, that that would bring a new dimension to the way that you have to coach and manage those guys. Is it true or is it still just cricket? I think that there's truth there and there's, again, some sort of exaggeration because in the end, they're young athletes, even 35. They're still young in many respects, good at what they do, and as you say, could be heralded around the world for what they do, but still young in many respects. So I guess I was... I wasn't as as mindful of that till one incident, which was, I think it would have been my second tour. So I mentioned we went to New Zealand in 2000. I don't remember third tour. But we went to India in uh, 2001, late 2001, I think it was. Yes, this was Steve War's last frontier tour of India. So by this stage- We'd won 15 test matches in a row. So that does take it towards either the, you know, early 2001, I think. Anyway. It was obviously very special to you. <laughs> <laughs> so we go to India and we're on this sort of roll. You know, it is, this is the northbound locomotive. You know, your strength is your weakness. There's a way that you play the game. And we'd adopted a, a very aggressive sort of approach to the game, meaning that. Technically, we were aggressive. Our batters were trying to challenge bowling sides all the time, not to just wait for bowling teams to bowl us, but really trying to challenge them. You know, our our bowling attack was doing the same thing. You know, it was really taking wickets. Steve Waugh would approach it in that vein all the time. He wanted his bowlers to take wickets. And and uh, fielding-wise, we're, you know, we're upping our, our skill levels. So, so that was, a, in a sense, the way that we played, and it was bringing us results and we won the first test in India in this tour uh, in Mumbai but it it was in hindsight masked it masked what was actually going on below it's it's a bit like this current series now Australia's just about to embark on a test series in India and um, for me going to India that was my first time and I, I felt that I wanted to have a camp before we left in Australia I wanted uh, the likes of the Borders and the Joneses and people that have been in India and played in India and played spin in India to come in and work with our our batters, because there was only only a few of our team who had been to India, the the War Boys, Warren McGrath, maybe Slater, but the rest were were quite novice to it. So let's all get together and work out 
plans and so on. Well, it didn't happen. And we had a two-hour meeting and everybody said, yeah, no, we're, we're, we're right. fine. We're rolling. We know how to play spin. We'll just keep doing what we're doing. So we won the first test on the back of Matthew Hayden and Adam Gilchrist just sweeping, sweeping, sweeping madly at uh, at Harbigen. And they they got away with the balls sort of fell beautifully for us and didn't for the Indians. And so we won that test. And, and then we went to Kolkata in gardens. And, uh, you know, part of what I did right from the outset was to try to tap into the players and their knowledge because that's where all the knowledge, intuition, experience lies. So, so in other words, part of the coaching was not to push that to one, to so, one side. That was critical in terms of understanding how to play the game. Where I used the data and the vision was to augment that, complement that, so that it made it more precise rather than it being a little bit ad hoc in terms of how you grabbed onto that information. So, so we had a session with... Matthew Hayden and Adam Gilchrist and, and Michael Slater as well because he'd scored a few runs there, talking about how they played in, you know, and, and how they were thinking and what was going in their mind so they could keep a clear mind and play their shots. So setting up for this, in addition to our, our team meeting, setting up for this test match. So uh, upshot of all that was we lost the unlosable test match. You know, we made 440 and batters got runs, which was fantastic. We then bowled India out for 170, which was fantastic. Forced the follow-up. Uh, 270 in front. You're on this roll, 16 test matches. Uh, nobody stopped to think what the option was. And that's one of my biggest lessons I found in coaching was that, you know, we only had 10 minutes in between because, and you've got less than that because you've actually then got to advise the groundspeople about rolling the wicket. So you've actually got three or four minutes in which – to make a call and decide what you want to do. So everybody rolled in, well, there's no, we just right. sent them in. Right. That's, that's yeah. the way to go. As a coach, my role right then and then was to be that objective person. It was a, to be that person that sits on the balcony and would have said back to the group, well, yes, that looks like the logical conclusion. However, we understand that the only way India could get back into the game is if we do this because if even if we bat poorly, you know, we'll have a lead of at least 450 and they're going to bat last, you know. So the only way that they can get back into this game, you know. So one, I didn't do it. Two, if I had done it, I think we would have still made the same decision, but potentially somewhere in the, the thinking and the way that we were going about what was happening would have been that notion, ah, well, we have to be a little bit tighter here or we have to be a little bit more defensive here or we have to make this call here and there. But in the end, obviously the 300 and 60 or 80 partnership, whatever it was, between Laxman and uh, Dravid, 640 or 50 runs later, you know, there we are on the end of day four and then, or sorry, into day five, trying to save the game. And, of course, we never had been in a position for 16 test matches to try and save a game. New territory. Um, New territory, and we didn't know how to do it, and we were in India, and Harbigen at this stage was just on fire. So... All the discussions that Adam Gilchrist and everybody had had prior to coming into the test, it just didn't happen. Adam was out. He, he got, I think he got first ball ducks both, wow. both innings in that game. Ricky Ponning, almost the same. And we, we were quite vulnerable. But this was leading into the story of, I suppose, Shane Warne and, and this notion of uh, big players and, and, and bigger egos and, and me probably not quite comprehending the way that the media respond to comments about 
these icons, the celebrities. So Shane had been injured coming on tour. He'd taken wickets the first test match, um, but in this particular test match where we had to bowl, I think, 160-odd overs in this second innings after only bowling 50-odd in the first innings. So he bowled more than 200 overs consecutively. He was in all sorts of bother because he was just unfit. Uh, he hadn't done the training, and I knew that because the physio was telling me, the trainers were telling me that, but you could see it in his way. Nonetheless, because of the person he was, he was still out there yes. competing. And that's that's one of the great things about someone like Shane Warne is that, um, you know, they donned that baggy green cap and even though it was still all about them, they wanted to be the centre of attention, it still meant something very, very much to be representing your country and trying to play well. So, uh, yeah, he was struggling. So come the end of that test match and I'd had all these other conversations, I then contacted the Australian chairman of selectors talked to Stephen Moore and said, look, we've got to make some impression on, on Warner here because at the moment he seems to be ignoring all the warning signs. So as, while this was about the third test, it was more about, well, what are you going to do about it, Shane? Because you just can't be overweight trying to come back from injury and all you're going to do is put yourself back out injured again if you don't look after yourself. So anyway, I went to a press conference and somehow dropped the word it's no uh, secret that Warney's probably not one of the fittest characters running around in world cricket. I couldn't cricket. quite, quite uh, remember the comment, but that was therefore suddenly coach says Warney's unfit. So that was deliberate. That wasn't it an was. insight into your inexperience dealing with celebrities. That was a ploy. Yeah, it was. Whether it was right or not, I think when I look back, would I do it again? Possibly. I don't know. So anyway, you know. Was that the end of your relationship with Shane Warne? Well, uh, Warney, uh, I would have thought... I mean, we hadn't had any reason. Oh, we had some reason. I mean, I, I could go back to that tour in New Zealand. And uh, uh, one of the things there, the first test match, when I talked about, you know, expanding everybody's horizons and doing other things, you know, I, I took them down to this albatross rookery in Dunedin. I said, you know, one day after training, you know, this is fantastic because there's only two or three places around the world where you can actually access these sort of birds on the mainland. You know, and they're apparently the biggest wingspan birds, whatever, you know. So anyway, so I said, right, we're going down. Off we went. And this is where I did show my experience because you used to drive two uh, high vans, you know. So I drove one, but Warney drove the other one. So about halfway along the trip, Warney pulls his vehicle up and says, I'm not going any further, you know. <laughs> Why? What was his reason? Oh, well, he didn't want to be there in the first place. But anyway, he was convinced by the rest of the group. But now, this was 25 minutes. I said it was only going to be a short drive, which I had no idea how long it was going to be. And what's the point in his mind? What, what, I, should be just, I should be just back in my room, yeah. you know. Uh, why am I going to go and see? You know, so anyway. And I didn't think right then and there on a little single lane road in the, on your way to a rookery was the time to be extolling my philosophy and the values and the virtues of expanding horizons. So basically, I you know, said, right, well, Two buses, I'm taking the one that's going to the rookery and anybody that feels like Warney, you know, you can go back to the hotel. Jeez, that would have been tough as the leader of the group, the coach. You you were really undermined right there, weren't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I didn't think – and, again, that's how you got to work out how you coach. Mm. Mine was always about ego in the back pocket. So mm. to try and win uh, a little battle there, I didn't think was the time to the fight one. 
So, and then when I, I talk corporately, then I will always say, well, it was a pretty lonely drive for me going down to the rookery. Really? Were you? How many came with you? Yeah, I had about oh, half a dozen, I suppose. Right. Oh, I'll see these birds. Yeah, yeah, of course. When we get down to the, the rookery, it had closed, so we couldn't get oh, in. No. So, anyway. So, anyway. <laughs> That's so an ill-fated trip, It mate. was, it was. But it, it also probably seeded, to some degree, Warney's, we go back to the boff, and I would have thought, uh, his view on a coach anyway coming into the side because prior to that it was really Mark Taylor who ran the side, right. captain, and Swampy who had been part of that side mm. while he was coach. I mean, his real job was just to organise nets and do some throwing. And He was a logistics and, manager, and, was he? Uh, well, no, there was a team manager, but Swampy's real role was he, he was just a great team person. So, right. you know, that Ex-player. was- player yeah, Been there, done and well that. known and, mm. and well respected, and so you were a completely different model to that. Totally different. Seven Shield games, completely yep. different angle. Yeah. So, I suspect Warney at that stage, without him having said anything, was always questioning, "Why do we need this sort of bloke?" Yeah. You know, we can do it almost ourselves. You know, just as Mark Taylor had done. Because of course, you know, he was back in 1999, but he was, all, and he still had eight years of his career to go at that point. But he was already a legend of the game. He'd already been nominated by Wisden as a legend of the game. The Australian newspaper had said he was one of the top three most influential Australians ever to play the game. This was before you even started coaching him. He'd already taken his 300th test wicket the year before you coached him, the second Australian behind Lily to ever do that. So you caught a guy who thought he, I mean, almost could do no wrong in the game, who probably was predisposed to not wanting that kind of guidance anyway. And then not long into your tenure, your relationship, in front of the media, you call him overweight. And we, we know now that he's quite a vain guy anyway. In fact, we've learned that it's a lot easier for him to keep himself in shape now than it was when he was a professional sportsman. So you really had a cursed relationship from there on, didn't you? Well, yes. I mean, it, I must say that at various times, you know, we'd sit down and have a nice chat about things. I mean, that, but generally, yeah, I mean, I... When I talk about coaching and relationships and I talked about uh, some being distant and some being close before, well, our relationship would have been distant. Uh, but you realise that and therefore you actually got to work out how to deal with that. But I suppose, you know, as I said, I, having made that comment and then seeing how it sort of blew up because he was this celebrity, it did give me a, a bit more insight into uh, the media and how you deal with them and what how you say it, when you say it, if you say it. So that was a that was certainly a, a bit of a learning experience in terms of dealing with that type of celebrity status. However, having said that, I guess my my response was always still not to be overawed by celebrity, because generally the celebrity is what I term that conditional player, not necessarily therefore the best player to bring a, a group together. So conditional player means. You know, when you're playing well, when you're the Top centre of, the of attention, you know, they're very supportive. They're very caring of everybody, almost too much so, you know, sharing and so on. But nonetheless, they, they very much buy into what's going on. Whether they agree with it or not, they just go with the flow because it's all happening for them. But, of course, that doesn't always occur. So when things are not happening for them, um, you ride the, the emotional roller coaster with them. So they, therefore, then really dive down into the depths. They become, yeah, quite morose quite isolated, but importantly, what they do is just blame everybody, blame, point fingers everywhere, apart from looking at themselves. So they're an indiv- individual in a team sport. They are. But of course, 
And is that People what Warney was? Warney was an individual. Oh, in but, but, but you, you need to understand that everybody has to be an individual. So mm. one of my coaching strategies always been about the individual. You have to get the individual performing and then it's about wrapping all that up in the team clothing, which is the team culture stuff, mm. you know, and how, we, how, do we, how do we glue all these pieces together? Because mm. the individual, I want them to be demanding of me as a coach or of the system because if they are demanding, that does mean that they've got a better understanding of their game meaning that if they've got a better understanding of their game, they're knowing what gives them best chance of performing. So we want all our individuals to perform at their best all the time. Never going to happen, but that's what we aim for. So I want the individual to know how they do that, and I want them then to tell me, as a coach, what they need to do that. Now, we've got limited resources, e.g. time or wickets or travel or whatever it might be. So there is some compromise in there. They've got to work out, well, how... Do I now adapt that into this team environment? And that's where Matthew Hayden, I know I had those conversations with him and I mentioned before when players came and went from the Australian side, I knew from our conversations that one of the reasons why he struggled a lot with his early selections in the Australian team, South Africa in particular, was that nobody really understood the way that he wanted to prepare. And obviously being around him in Queensland, I had a fair idea of what he needed and how to go about that. So that became always pretty critical to have the players understand what they needed and then try wherever possible to make sure that we were able to deliver that. And that might mean that, you know, we, we split up groups, we changed times, we spent time before or after, you know, wherever we could do it to make sure that we believed that we were giving the player as best we could their individual preparation. As much as we like to talk about Warney and the the highlights that we get from him about his time with you, there's a bunch of players from that era who've come out public and, and talked about the fact that you helped shape their career. Matthew Hayden is one of them. Ricky Ponting is a massive fan of what you brought to that team. Same to Adam Gilchrist, Stephen Waugh, uh, Michael Hussey, a fan of what you brought, but also had a really interesting take on, on your approach to, to Warney, that it was actually deliberate of you to get under his skin like that because, as we've talked about, you were pushing his boundaries. And if his response was to say, well, I don't need any of that rubbish and I'll show you and go out and take five wickets, then that's a win for you as the coach and for the team. So your approach resonated really strongly with a lot of people. There were a couple of high profile uh, naysayers though. You know, there was Ian Chappell, Michael Slater, actually, you had a blow up with Michael Slater. And of course, Warney, who have talked about, now look, I'll drop the Warney thing, but there's something that as I research for this conversation, I just found so funny. I knew that he had a real problem with the boot camp that you put them through and you'd already called him out as being overweight and unfit. You took them on this boot camp. It wasn't just about fitness. It was about, as we talked about, pushing people outside their boundaries. There's pampered cricketers. You slept them in a sleeping bag, no mattress, all that kind of stuff. You were trying to harden them up. And is it true that Warney turned to you and said, I'm weak as piss. I hate your guts. I want to go home. You're a dickhead. More or less. More or less. I mean, that, it is just such a funny thing or less, for a professional to say. It is. But look, again, um, just on that boot camp, you had to understand why I thought it was important. And there were a whole range of things. There was a break in our program. So this was probably the planning of it anyway. started in early 2006 and there was a bit of a break in our program. And in 2005, we'd lost the Ashes in England. So, you had to shake them up a bit. Well, 
Well, firstly, uh, you know, I was called into question because, you you know, you just can't lose to the Poms. You can do most things in Australia, but if the Poms are beating you, then heads have got to roll. And uh, so from that particular tour, Warren had had a fantastic tour, other and individuals had performed okay at different stages, but we just never came together as a group. And there's, we could go into that another story. There's another lot of stories in behind all that. But um, 2005, come back, the board says, well, why should you be coach? You know, and should we still retain Ricky Ponting as captain? And should we do this? Or should we do that? But anyway, I had about three weeks or less to justify. I had to justify to the board why I should be retained. So I had about three weeks before I went down to the interview. And by that stage, what, what was that? That was uh, six years in the role virtually. Well, going back to the winning record, our winning record was still up there. We just had lost this series to Poms. And it was a very close series, did exciting walk, series. Did you walk into that meeting and say, hey, I'm a better coach than Lombardi? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> but it's, it's um, I think, again, and I, I, I do talk about it in either my corporate workshops or when I get to talk with CEOs or executives, you know, I think we're all faced with those questions at different stages in our life you you reach a point where should i still be here and either you're asking that or somebody else is asking that of you and it's a pretty important question to ask sometimes we are we are we reflect on our daily you know how was yesterday oh wasn't that good i'm doing the right thing but this is career this is not just uh, finessing around the edges and, and fixing up a few parts of your job description and making sure you're doing better the next day this is about career and life going forward. So, um, yeah, three three things really stick in my mind that I had to ask myself and only I could ask myself and I had to answer them honestly. And, and the first one was, could I still make a difference? Because as I said, my philosophy was always about being a game changer. And if I couldn't live and breathe that and deliver that, well, what value was I to the team? Uh, the second was that, you know, one of my, I guess, values is around just hard work and, and making things happen. So my second question was, well, if you believe you can still make a difference, do you really still want to? Do you still have the energy, the, the enthusiasm to get up every day? And travel so much? Travel you have a family? 250 days mm-hmm. a year away from home. Did you, you had young kids at that stage? We had five, yeah. Right, yeah, all five. of all ages. Yeah, then. so fortunately my wife was able to manage the whole show. Then deal with media, mm-hmm. deal with the likes of an Ian Chappell you mentioned before or Michael Slater or Shane Warne internally that were you know, going to have a crack at you at different stages, mm-hmm. planning every session, physically getting involved. You know, so did I still want to do that? And then the third question probably most important was did I still have the respect of the players, at least the major decision makers in the in the team, so captain, vice captain, senior players and so on. And and that one, while I, I believed I, could, I had to make a few phone calls. To find out if that was true. find out if that was true. And... and they would, call? Oh, well, the likes of Ricky Ponting, Adam Gilchrist, Matthew Hayden, Justin Langer. The guys that Glenn you knew McGrath. would say nice things. Well, probably. <laughs> Although Glenn McGrath wasn't necessarily in that boat, was he? No, no. Well, Glenn was never – Glenn was sort of neutral. Was he, he was never going to be outspoken one way yeah. or outspoken another way. But he would be supportive or non-supportive, yeah. and I always found him supportive. But but I still had to check with those guys because if if they were wavering, and they would have told me, yeah. if they were wavering, then gee, I've I've lost my leadership and support base. How am I going to win the rest of the, the crew over? So, so those three questions, I answered honestly, yes. So therefore, I went to the board and said, I'm still the best man for the job. However, there's a shelf life, and I'm going to take you. Th- if you give me the opportunity, I'll take you through to the end of the World Cup and um, the Everest. 
will be that we'll win the big three. And so in um, August of 2006, I think it was, there was the uh, ICC Trophy, which is a, a one-day event in Australia, not one. It was being played in India, so we'd never won that one. Then basically come back and take on the Poms. So here was an opportunity to reverse the result. Redeem ourselves. Over there. And then a couple of months, or not even a couple of months, probably about six weeks, we're going to the World Cup and could we win that? And that would make three World Cups in a row. But the big three was stacking these three together. And then I said, you know, part of the, the way to do that, well, we're going to be the best skilled team the world had ever seen. So that then drives, you know, selections, budgets, training, the way that you operate, you know. So that was really important for me to do. Firstly, ask the questions. Secondly, get the buy-in of, you know, which was James Sutherland, Alan Border, Mark Taylor, whoever, a couple of other people on the board. And so this is what's going to happen. So that that effectively is, is I guess, how I came to get through that last period, but be very clear that I was finishing then. And part of that process then was about succession planning and, and so on to take over from me, which was Tim Nielsen. That was part one of my conversation with John Buchanan. What a thrill it was to sit down with John and have the opportunity to hit him with all the questions I've ever wanted to ask. Not just about him, his coaching style and leadership, but about that grand era of Australian cricket. I loved hearing about the way John got started in his career, bringing his unique style to the Queensland Bulls. It's an intriguing image, this relative newcomer to the coaching world bringing his new age, computer-fueled coaching style to a Queensland side led by Alan Border in his penultimate year of playing. What courage to be so different, and what about the rewards? And of course, I loved hearing all about Warney and the stories he told about the other players from that brilliant era. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from part one of my conversation with John on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn. And join me soon for part two of my conversation with John Buchanan as I continue my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.